0: Not only does trust now have the ignominy, ignominy, ignominy. They've all got it (laughs) ignominy. Standard issue for all women.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 227 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I've been crying at dinosaurs. Which ones? So, as a surprise, Gary took me to the Jurassic World exhibition at Excel near Customs House in London. And I was so genuinely moved when I first walked in and there's the gates and there's a dinosaur and she's just in front of you and she's moving and it is like as close as you're ever going to get to seeing a dinosaur and I just started crying (laughs) yeah I just the melodica tune was in my head and I was just like my chin started to wobble and then Gary was like oh it was just genuinely very very Emotional, and you know, obviously, it's cognitive dissonance because I know that is not a real dinosaur, but this is the one time that I am very pleased about cognitive dissonance, and my heart absolutely overruled my head. It was totally magical.
0: Well, that sounds lovely. Can I ask how you knew she was a lady dinosaur? Did she have a pink bow in it? All
1: dinosaurs in Jurassic World and Jurassic Park are women, are female, Hannah.
0: Yes, that's right, they were,
1: yeah. So they're all female, and they have actors who. I don't want to spoil it for people. I think they're actors. Maybe they are actually like rangers. But they are actors who like talk about the dinosaurs and introduce you to them. And oh, it was amazing. There was a a T-Rex and the power went. And where are we all going to escape? It's very exciting. I had uh, an excellent time.
0: (laughs) How many times did you say to yourself, clever girl?
1: I kept saying clever boy because Gary had brought me here. So yeah, the raptors were very cool. The raptors were very cool. But obviously T-Rex was my favorite. Soft spot for T-Rex. Sounds a bit scary, to be honest. Some kids clearly weren't doing cognitive dissonance at all, Jen, and were genuinely screaming. So, yeah, I think they're they're so impressive. They are so impressive as creations. Um, The dinosaurs, not the children, by the way.
0: Great. Well, it's more exciting than my weekend. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I decided to perfect creamed spinach at the weekend. And I think I've put on about half a stone doing it. That sounds quite exciting to me, to be honest, Hannah. I don't know if I have perfected it, but I really badly need to defrost my freezer, so I thought I better clear out. And I had a really unexpected amount of frozen spinach in there.
1: (laughs) What's the expected amount of frozen spinach in a freezer at any given time?
0: Like a bag. One bag, I would say. Probably one. How many did you have? Like eight? I had. One full bag and I had four half bags. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that is a lot of spinach. This is the problems with the chest freezer. Is They're great for certain things. But here's a tip for people. If you've got a chest freezer, they're cheaper to run if they're full than mm. if they're half full. So I buy a lot of frozen vegetables.
1: And frozen veggies are very good yeah. for you. Yeah. I was always scared of our chest freezer when I was little. Mum had
0: one. In case you found a body in there.
1: Well, and because I have false memory syndrome sometimes and I have this like real weird thing that I have killed a man and put the body in the chest freezer. So I I had a real fear of the chest freezer. Clearly a very rational fear of the chest freezer. It was massive because we were in a bungalow, but it was a dormer bungalow. It was this weird little upstairs shed room that had all my dad's mucky books that he'd left behind. So, you know, I'd be like, reading confessions of a window cleaner aged eight and being scared that at some point I might just accidentally fall in the chest freezer it's a very exciting time in mm. my
0: life I used to babysit for these people who kept birds like kestrels and things mm. like that not where they lived but you know somewhere else now I think about it it all seems a bit mad but I remember I was about 14 they were like oh we've got some lollies in the freezer if you want some and opening the chest freezer and there being loads and loads and loads of like dead wildlife in there Ooh. and just closing it yeah. and just being like that's disgusting Oh, that's the wasp factory that yeah yeah
2: i'm jen offord and i know you're probably going to talk about this in bush telegraph but i just want the opportunity to say it i want a general election now
1: i think you'll find jen that they're now called jenny lex <laughs> you want a jenny lex <laughs> Who, who's calling it a jenny lex well we had a platy jubes <laughs> So now it's time for the Jenny Lex. I've seen it on uh, the Twitter, people referring to it as Jenny Lex. I don't know that I can get behind it, but I would like a Jenny Lex or a general election. I'll take either. Sounds too much like Jenny Flex. It's true. It's true. It's sort of my
2: name, so I don't really like it. But I would also take, again, my benign dictatorship. I think it's time. <laughs> I think it's time. It's got to be better than this dictatorship, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a very low bar. Well, not that hot on
2: economics, but like, I'm at least nice. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I'm sure we could muddle through it.
0: Fucking hell. Well, Jen, are we all going to be able to work a four-day week in your routine? Yeah, fuck it. Why not? Because coming up, I talk to Marion Salmon. Come on with the segways. Nice. <laughs> so I'm just laughing that, Jen, that
1: was quite Tory. You just promised us a policy with absolutely no thought behind it. You were like, yeah, fuck it, why not?
2: I've thought about it <laughs> at length. Um, on balance, I'm for it. I may change my mind after I listen to Hannah's interview, but I don't think I will. Hannah, continue with your segue. Yes,
0: yeah, So. Coming up, I talk to Marion Salmon from the four-day week campaign about why they believe that employees can work fewer hours and still achieve the same results. Ahead of the NFL match between the Jacksonville
2: Jaguars and the Denver Broncos at Wembley Stadium on Sunday, I get the lowdown on the match and indeed the sport from Sky Sports presenter Hannah Wilkes. And in Rated or Dated, we are back flipping to 1992 as we watch Buffy
0: the Vampire Slayer. Can I just say I quite like American football. It reminds me in an odd way of both cricket and chess. It's a lot about the strategy.
1: Did you have to wear a helmet when you played chess? Were they worried that you <laughs> might get like a, a little piece in the eye? <laughs> no,
0: no. But it's the kind of sport that comes with a ring binder.
1: That is
2: true. It's true. I mean, I knew nothing of it, really. So a very interesting
0: chat with Hannah. Do you know what a nickel defense is now? Though? No, I <laughs> oh, do <you> not. Know? <laughs> But first, if I call Steve Baker a cunt, will I be taken off air? Find out in the Bush Telegraph. Cue sting. Bush Telegraph.
1: Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Rolling our eyes at the notion the new Prime Minister can sort out the economy. Uh. What? Too soon, <laughs> uh. I mean, I'm not great with cash, but imagine inheriting your
0: own money troubles. <laughs> I mean, that terrifies me, quite frankly. <laughs> I mean, to me, it's the most positive thing about death is that you don't have to pay your bills anymore. (laughs) Oh, there she is, Pollyanna (laughs) Dunleavy. Yes. Oh, yes. Welcome to the UK, where doctors who do memory tests are scrambling to find a question that isn't, do you know who the prime minister is? (laughs) It's currently Tuesday morning, so I'm expecting there to be a handover of power to Rishi Sunak sometime today. So... By the time you listen to this on Wednesday, if all things go as I expect, the former Chancellor will have been ousted in a coup led by the ghost of Norman Tebbit <laughs> and Steve Baker. What a cunt. <laughs> and the Prime Minister will be Nadine Dorries holding a cushion with Boris's face on. She got from
3: Snappy steps
0: <laughs> All right, Sonia. Uh, Partridge joke. <laughs> Do I know who the Prime Minister is? No, Doctor. I don't. Drugs, please. And by that, she means
1: more drugs, please.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, where to start? I could probably talk for longer about Truss's spectacular flame-out than it actually took. So, in the interest of keeping this tight, let's just say her plan to keep the country warm this winter by setting it ablaze Uh, wasn't her best. No. In fact, it's not often that I'm in hearty agreement with Caroline Slocum, friend of the show, Caroline Slocum. But she smashed the nail right on the head on Newsnight when she said watching Truss's 44 Days in Power was like watching Margaret Thatcher's career on Fast Forward, but without any achievements. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Not only does Truss now have the ignominy of being the shortest-serving PM ever, she's also the worst female PM yet. And that, my friends, is saying something. Of the women! <laughs> <laughs> So, I'm sure you'll all be painfully aware of what followed, but I'm going to say it out loud as much for my benefit as anybody else's. These things are happening. This is not because you took too many mushrooms in the (laughs) 90s and other more recent decades. What happened was a pantomime in which Boris Johnson stopped working hard to serve the best interests of his Uxbridge constituents from a Caribbean beach and flew back to the UK as stage one of a plan to storm back to power. Sir so Graham Brady got to swing his dick around a bit on live TV. Not literally, but that was available elsewhere this weekend. <laughs> mm. hmm. A number of Tory MPs went on to abjectly debase themselves in supporting Johnson's return to number 10, mostly using the excuse that he had a mandate from the 2019 election. I'll be honest, it will save money redecorating again is a shit excuse, but it's better than anything these guys rustled up. Yep. But... It turns out, despite the fact that Johnson totally did have all the support and would absolutely win a thumping victory, Of course. he decided that this wasn't the right time. Still, Labrooks did all right out of it, I'm sure. And so then it was Sunak. About ten minutes later, hashtag rushyout was trending (laughs) and the BBC showed us a Sunak word cloud that included good (laughs) and okay and then desperately tried to tell us that this was positive. The word cunt was also on it. Very small. After all, he's no Steve Baker. But the whole thing made me realise that seven days a week, I'd rather have cunt in my word cloud than okay. (laughs) Have you looked at your word cloud, (laughs) Hannah? I don't know how you do it. I'm a bit worried. Not long after being announced as the MP's choice for PM, Sunak gave an odd little speech in which he looked in the wrong direction and then just wandered off awkwardly at the end. I'm guessing that's a glimpse into the future. General election now, please. Oh, fucking hell, that speech was lol's puke. <laughs> it was
1: aux. awful. Not least, soon out thinking his promise of, quote, stability and unity has any <laughs> legs at all, given the last Tory PM was beaten by a lettuce amid actual pushing and shoving at Westminster. <laughs> to be fair, I reckon the lettuce would have known which fucking camera to look at. Oh, God, I cringed so hard, I gave myself a in headache. Oh, man. Remember during the pandemic when Soonout was dishing out public cash left, right and centre with all the blasé of a man worth three quarters of a billion pounds. (laughs) But we were scared and everything was unprecedented. And maybe he wasn't like other Tory chancellors and doesn't he have a kind face? And so lots of us were wishing he was Prime Minister and not Bunga Bunga Johnson. Be careful what you wish for, people. Although the delay on that one has got me worried about some other wishes I've made in extenuating circumstances (laughs) and now have absolutely no desire to see realised. I mean, where the fuck would I even put a tiger? Anyway, so Hannah just used the word pantomime there and it is certainly fitting with cries of, oh no, she didn't, soundtracking Mm -hmm. Liz Truss's brief tenure. He's behind you, apparently being the answer to the question, who's the chancellor? When asked (laughs) by the chancellor and boo, being the correct response to any policy announced by any of the Home Secretaries. The thing is, pantomimes are entertaining. They're distracting And indeed, while we've been staring a gog at the madness playing out in Parliament, shit has been getting very real indeed for the people of the UK. The Trussell Trust has stated that the need for food banks has outstripped donations for the first time ever. The charity distributed 46% more emergency food parcels in August and September than it did in 2021. It is expecting to provide 1.3 million emergency food parcels in the next six months, including an estimated half a million for children, and has launched its first ever emergency appeal, saying, "...the impact of the cost of living crisis is being most keenly felt by people on the lowest incomes, forced to live from day to day, never having sufficient funds to bulk buy or take advantage of discounts. It costs more to be poor." As well as skipping meals, not switching the heating on, not buying school uniforms to replace outgrown ones, many families have no option but to turn to a charity to make ends meet. It costs more to be poor, is the starkest of truths. And while Sunak's appointment as PM might make the markets less wobbly, his hardline Conservative Party credentials mean the most vulnerable in our society will still be feeling sick to the empty stomach. And indeed, Food banks have opened at hospitals in Leicester to support NHS workers struggling with the rising cost of living. Turns out a weekly doorstep clap two years ago doesn't put food on the table. At the same time, hospitals are bracing for a COVID and flu twindemic this winter. On last week's Bush Telegraph, you heard Jen and I talking about the various hostile policies being pushed through that undermine our judiciary system, halt our rights to protest, put more power into the hands of a problematic police and foster even more hostile environments for those seeking asylum. And in the most recent chops, I was talking to the Wildlife Trust about how the government is fucking up our nature. This pantomime is a shit show of epic proportions with a never-ending cascade of shit and nothing good to show. General election now, please.
0: Yeah. I think we've probably crawled through enough broken glass to have earned a bit of good news, My right? My knees
1: hurt, Hannah. My knees <laughs> are bleeding. They're bleeding.
0: <laughs> and hard though this is to believe, I have some.
1: What? Okay.
0: Yeah. And that is that last week, an overwhelming majority of MPs voted to protect women and their ability to access healthcare by establishing buffer zones around abortion clinics in England and Wales.
1: This is excellent news.
0: I mean, both bits of that are good news, I suppose. Green light to buffer zones, great. Mm-hmm. An overwhelming majority of MPs agreed on anything. Fucking unbelievable.
1: <laughs> I think we are back in unprecedented times, Hannah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and assume that most of our listeners will understand why buffer zones are needed, but for the avoidance of any doubt, it's because of ends <laughs> A statement by Pass said, quote, the fight is Was not that over. Was not a
1: quote from the statement from B Pass? <laughs> <laughs>
0: The fight is not over. We need to see women in Northern Ireland and Scotland offer the same protection from anti-abortion clinic harassment. Mm-hmm. We also need to ensure this amendment passes through the House of Lords over the next three months in order to become law. We have been working tirelessly for years to end anti-abortion clinic harassment. We are so grateful to all those who campaigned alongside us. Every email, every tweet, every message made a real difference. So... Well done, Pass. And I suppose if you emailed, tweeted or messaged, well done you. Take the win, people. Not sure when an overwhelming majority of MPs are going to agree on anything ever again.
1: Um, Probably not about that, but more news next week.
0: Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they?
1: Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we wander through the streets of Edinburgh, famously populated by women as well as men. Really? I know, I know. You would be mistaken for for thinking not when you wonder, where are all the statues of women? And by all, I pretty much mean any, given there are just two, just two, one, two, count them, statues of named women in central Edinburgh. Mary Queen of Scots, I mean, fucking no-brainer right there, and Queen Victoria. And of course, this isn't new news to you listeners. Jen and I chatted with author and mapper of women's history, Sarah Sheridan, about this years ago. But... Edinburgh's dearth of named women statues meant it was even more giddy-making and about fucking time when five years ago, efforts began to establish a statue to Dr Elsie Inglis. Elsie Inglis, now then, what a woman. She was a pioneering First World War physician, suffragist and figurehead for Scottish feminism. And Inglis really was incredible. When she approached the Royal Army Medical Corps to offer them a ready-made medical unit staffed by qualified women, the War Office told her... My good lady, go home and sit still. Mm-hmm. The French government, however, were less up their own patriarchy and so took her upon her offer. <laughs> she went on to establish war hospitals in France, Belgium, Serbia and Russia, where her all-female staff treated the sick and dying. So a big yes please to that statue, right? You'd think. And on the Royal Mile, no less, right outside the original hospital founded in 1904 by Dr Inglis for the city's poorest women and babies... All of this to be unveiled in 2024, exactly 120 years after the Royal Mile Hospice opened its doors.
0: Perfect.
1: Right. Funds were raised and the committee behind the sculpture called for emerging artists as well as experienced artists to submit entries. And by that, they meant sketches and a tenth size figurative sculpture. For consideration, stating they would work with them to help achieve a sculpture that would, quote, embody Elsie's achievement for posterity in bronze. The shortlist of three was due to be revealed in November. And then, at the end of September, it was
0: announced on Facebook.
1: On Facebook? Who the fuck is announcing things on Facebook? (laughs) What are you, my (laughs) mum?
0: So everybody's racist now knows what's going on first,
1: yeah. That actually no submissions were to be made because Alexander Stoddart, the royal family's official sculptor in Scotland, had been handed the job. Worth noting, by the way, that Stoddart had not applied... The committee's gist appears to be safe hands, which has understandably pissed off the many artists who have already spent many hours working on their submissions, only to be told in not so many words that they could never be as good as this bloke. And yeah, Stoddart is a man, a man who wasn't even interested enough in Elsie Inglis to put himself forward during the initial call for submissions. So plenty of the artists and campaign supporters are quite rightly hacked off about that too. Because wouldn't it be fitting to have this statue of a fierce fighter for women's rights created by a female
0: artist? Too right it would. Mickey. Yeah. My good lady, <laughs> go home and sit still. Um, I am at home and I
1: am sitting fairly still. <laughs> but no. But you. No, I won't. For now, amid all the uproar, Elsie's statue is on pause. And that is a real shame. I do think they've been ends the way they've handled it and it slaps twice as hard because they've just given it to an old bloke from the establishment. But the real sexism remains that there's only two statues of named women in Edinburgh in 2022 and they're both queens from
0: fucking ages ago. Yeah. Yeah. What is it with statues and women that they always come with this fucking added psychodrama? Our friend Elsa Clark sent us this. She's a big expert on Elsie uh, on Inglis
1: she is could elsa maybe like do a statue
0: but we said there's some plaster scene
1: a gorilla statue not a statue of a gorilla but like g-u-e-r and then some other letters that i'm not going to risk spelling wrong but a gorilla statue of Elsie english should just pop up i think yeah that'd be cool
0: i bet there are some scottish women knitting one right now (laughs) i hope so Hello, Hannah here. I'm joined by Marianne Salman from the Four Day Week campaign. Thank you for joining me, Marianne, particularly since you are actually technically on your holiday.
3: Hi, lovely to meet you and so glad to be here with you today.
0: Tell me about the campaign, who you are, when you started, what your aims are.
3: So the aim of the campaign is really quite straightforward. We want to reduce the five-day working week to four-day working week. I mean, the five-day, nine-to-five week is outdated and no longer fit for purpose. We introduced this 100 years ago, and now we've made tremendous strides in technology and automation, and it's time for a change, you know? This is the 21st century, and we need a new model of working. There's multiple purposes, but the main purpose that businesses look at is outcome and productivity. So in terms of outcome and productivity, the five day working week isn't really fit for purpose because we're seeing that reducing working hours is increasing productivity. So that would be a common sense move for businesses to make. But also, I think if you look at work and look at what that means for workers and people, I think, you know, after the pandemic, everyone's ridiculously bent out. And, you know, that's been the case really For years, for a lot of people, we're having, you know, one of the worst mental health crises that anyone's ever seen and there needs to be change. And a lot of our lives do revolve around working. Mm. Clearly, there needs to be an introduced a four-day week. People's well-being and mental health has improved and that's just, you know, so, so, so important and just, again, beneficial to everyone.
0: Okay, let's talk about that because you have had some companies trialing a four-day week, and they have reported back. The first thing I want to ask you is what sort of companies got on board with this? Can you give us an idea of the sort of maybe the industries they work in or the number of employees that they have?
3: It's quite diverse, really. I mean, we have the, you know, traditional office-based jobs like marketing, law, accountancy, quite able to easily visualize how a four-day week would work for them. But then we have some more organizations that require 24-hour type of atmosphere like mm. care homes and construction workers and even you know we even have a fish and trip shop that's taking part in in the trial and there has been a transition period it would change that's often the case but for most organizations that's been you know two to three weeks and after that they've seen gains and benefits and productivity and it's possible to have a four-day week across multiple sectors
0: basically we're talking about dropping hours by 20 percent, as opposed to making people work like a bat out of hell for four days in in order to get the fifth day, which is on the most occasions I've ever been offered a four-day week, that is the option.
3: I think that's pretty much it. I think what we are asking for when we ask for a four-day week is a 32-hour week with no loss of pay. Again, that could look different for different people and different organisations. That could be five days cut shorter, so you could have shorter five days, or you could just have a day off. And so you would have a true four day week. And I think, you know, it's really important to make sure that this works for a wide range of organisations and and people as well. For some people working shorter five day weeks is more beneficial to them and more suited to, to their life than, you know, chopping a day off their work week. Okay, let's talk about that. Because
0: for the most part, I would say that any benefit to your average working person is almost certainly going to be of more benefit to your average working woman and of much, much more benefit to your average working mother. So I wonder, have you looked into sort of some sex disaggregated information about what the benefits would be for women in particular?
3: I think if we really look at the data on how a four day week impacts women, it's really quite astonishing. I think the gender pay gap, especially when women have children, is criminal, it's honestly just criminal, you see women lose 33% of their income compared to men when they give birth, when they have children. And obviously, that's that's not fair. And that needs to change. Mm-hmm. And a four day week is actually quite a good solution to part of that problem. Having reduced hours for everyone means that there's more equal distribution to unpaid work you know women if you combine unpaid and paid work women work way more than men do Mm. and again that's tremendously unfair and that needs to change and by distributing the time that you take off more evenly we give women the opportunity to not have to decide shall I have a child or you know shall I focus on my career Mm. they can genuinely have both Right now, on average, women who have children work 30 hour weeks compared to your standard 35 or 40 hour week. If we have a four day week, everyone will be working 30 hour weeks. That would mean that there would be less inequality in terms of women having to give up hours or give up time that they spent in the office or working because there'll be a much more even playing field. And I think that's one of my personal favourite parts of potentially having a four-day week in the future.
0: Part-time work is predominantly done by women. So I wonder, are the companies that you work with dropping part-time staff with a proportionate amount of hours?
3: Companies that are taking part in the trial aren't dropping part-time staff, so they're having people who work five days a week moving on to four days a week, and these are full-time workers. So if you're working four days a week, before the trial, those four days a week would be considered as full-time work.
0: Got you. So you would go up to a full-time salary, I take it?
3: Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. right.
0: I know you've had some pushback to this. And I think quite a lot of the pushback I'd like to discount as just being, you know, oh, well, I worked 100 hours when I was a lad and everybody should do it. (laughs) So we just ignore that line of argument. People who are paid by the hour in this country are not going to be able to benefit from a four-day week. And I suppose my concern would be that the gap between the gig economy is going to become huge. So I wonder, do you have any ideas as an organisation about how we tackle working conditions of those people?
3: Yeah, and I think, you know, we're really kind of mindful of the fact that the four-day week right now that we're pushing for, that we're campaigning for, doesn't really benefit people who work in the gig economy or people who you know are paid by the hour and i think really what we need in this instance is support from the government to make you know workers rights more robust and more power to trade unions and really we should you know push back on unfair and inhumane types of work and contracts no one should have to I mean, again, we're going through a cost-of-living crisis. No one should have to make decisions that are life and death because they're not given the salary that they need and deserve.
0: Yeah. So tell me, Mariam, do you do a four-day week?
3: I do do a four-day week. And I have worked definitely not a four-day week yeah. in the past. <laughs> and, I I mean, it has been life-changing for me. I think I've you know, had the opportunity to spend more time with my family, to to just have time to relax and not spend my entire weekend doing laundry. Do you know what? That is the benefit I
0: see of it when, especially in the summer, when I've got a garden and my Saturday is about housework and my Sunday is about garden work. And I just think, when do I get to do something fun? (laughs) When is it not just a different sort of work? Yeah,
3: exactly. And it's it's really interesting because I feel that a lot of our weekend is just spent doing unpaid labour a lot of the time. And just, you know, having that extra day off, I can I can actually genuinely have a day to myself where I'm not doing work of one mm. shape or form. So I know some people just
0: love work. Some people are like that, either because they love their job or because I think for some people it's, it's uh, maybe I want to use the word cultural. My, my dad came from a working class background work is the thing that improves your quality of life work is the route to success or the route to money or all of those things do you think we have a problem as a nation with that as a mindset and that we need to get out of the idea that work is I don't know what the best way to describe it as because I think with my dad it was almost religious it was an almost religious idea that work was the thing that would improve you.
3: It's interesting. And I feel like it's a vicious cycle because when you have to work really long hours, work becomes your entire life. And so when you have so little time to step back from work and actually reflect on, you know, what do I like? What do I care about in life? What do I enjoy? Mm-hmm. Work does become everything because it's, it, it, it takes up such big chunks of our life. I completely understand why, you know, we have, again, this type of culture. Because work is everything Mm. because of the hours that we work. I'm hopeful and I'm optimistic that we'll change in the future when we have, you know, more time to ourselves and more time to, you know, discover what we enjoy doing outside of work.
0: The reports that you've had back from the, the companies, has that done anything to sort of dampen the pushback then? Is the proof being in the pudding helping?
3: I think I think it's definitely helping. There's always going to be pushback and criticism from oftentimes people who haven't worked a four-day week or organizations who haven't trialed it. Yeah. Or, you know, think tanks who have their own, you know, business interests behind them. But, you know, again, the proof is in the pudding. Like, everything that we've heard back from organizations that are actually trialing a four-day week it's you know it's been great like 88 percent of companies say they'd you know continue with a four-day week that's that's a massive number
0: yeah they were great yeah, figures yeah yeah
3: and uh, we've had you know people who are taking part in the trial who you know told their friends and family about it and you know everyone's been really envious but yeah. you know we've reached a point where it's a real possibility that everyone can have a four-day week. It might not happen tomorrow. It might not happen next year. But, you know, within the next five to ten years, we are seeing a transition, whether that's with flexible working or remote working. And whether that's with, you know, working fewer hours, you know, that's definitely on the cards and on the table. You know, there are benefits in productivity uh, and well-being when we look at a four-day week. But, you know, in terms of the environment, introducing a four-day week reduces our carbon footprint by 21%. Wow.
0: Well, I mean, of course it does. Yeah.
3: Yeah. 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 That's the equivalent of taking all of private cars off the road. That is, you know, massive. And considering we're very close to not having a planet in the future, I think this is definitely something that not just businesses but governments should consider as well yeah i mean i would
0: imagine there has got to be some to some degree some sort of economic bonus in the fact that for example if what you like doing on your day off is that you go play golf or you go at the cinema or you go shopping or whatever that you're out circulating buying coffee buying tea going to charity shops all of those things you're out rather than at home doing the washing up which is what we all do on our day off yeah <laughs>
3: exactly and, and and we've seen exactly that too i think there's massive benefits to the local economy as well because i guess as you're saying like most of our weekends are like spent doing you know domestic labor doing the laundry or you know stressing out about monday but when you have an extra day off that's not just an extra day off you know to yourself that's potentially an extra day off to to go out with your mates to the, the pub or yeah. to the cinema and you know contribute to the local economy which again you know desperately desperately needs that after years of lockdowns and pandemics
0: yeah if we've got people listening and they think do you know what I think my company that I work for or my company that I run might be able to do this what would you advise that they do
3: I mean first and foremost they just advise that they go for it I think the transition period that we've heard from many organizations that are taking part has been you know two to three weeks but after those initial two to three weeks they've seen you know massive gains in productivity and well-being uh, and staff retention uh, but also in terms of attracting you know the best talent as well because everyone wants to work a four-day week mm-hmm. i'd encourage anyone who's curious to to try it or to even you know look at the evidence and research present right now because that's predominantly positive and what we can see it's you know a one solution for both employers and and workers but also you know society as a whole
0: and if they want to know more about four day week the campaign where should they go
3: they should go to uh, the fourdayweek.co.uk where they can find loads of useful resources and examples Uh, the four day week is working really well for lots of people
0: brilliant thank you so much mariam this has been really interesting technical problems be damned we got through it
3: (laughs) thank you so much you play ball like a girl
2: go on do one kid jenny off the blocks i'm joined on the zoom by sky sports presenter hannah wilkes hi hannah how are you doing
4: hi jen i'm very well thank you thanks for having
2: me on thank you for joining me so you're here today to chat to me about the nfl or American football to the uninitiated. And the reason we're chatting about that is in honour of the NFL matches being played in London this month. The Jacksonville Jaguars take on the Denver Broncos on the 30th of October at Wembley. So it's not the first time that NFL games have been played in London, but it is a sport that we probably associate more with the US. So, can I ask you, Hannah, because I know you are a big NFL fan how you came to be
4: interested in the sport in the first place well it's actually sort of through the the games being played in London it started off just one game a season as you can imagine back in sort of 2007 2008 oh, and wow. now we're yeah it's been a long time uh, and now we're up to having three games in London this year so we've had two at Spurs the Saints Vikings game and the Packers played the Giants and then they, they were both at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium then we've got this one coming up at Wembley but when I first started at Sky, I was a runner. I was assigned to a Wembley NFL game, and it was the Chicago Bears against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And at the time, I was mostly excited about it because the quarterback for the Bears was Jay Cutler, who was married to Kirsty Cavallari. She was on the hills. I was very excited. OC, the hills, all that stuff. <laughs> and so I got, I got loaned out to Fox, who were over from the U.S., doing the main coverage of it because they do it week in week out one of the commentators said to me oh do you know anything about what you're watching And I was like honestly no I was like but I was brought up watching a lot of rugby I'm enjoying the physicality there's a lot going on in the field then the ball's popping out the crowd's going wild so I don't know what's happening but I think I'm like I'm excited Uh, so he took me through the basics I later discovered that he was a three-time Super Bowl champion wow Yeah. Once I did some Googling, I realised the gaudy jewellery he had on wasn't just a blingy ring. It was a Super Bowl ring. So, you know, Daryl Johnson, thank you for the lesson. (laughs) From there, it just sort of, it grew because I always say, unless you've got quite liberal parents, it's unlikely that you grew up watching the sport in the UK. And also we didn't have as much of it on TV when I was growing up like we do now. I mean, we show five games a week on Sky Sports now, but it was sort of a half hour highlight show in the middle of the night, you know, until... Relatively recently, so yeah, it was a sport I just didn't know anything about. But once I sort of got into it and I started to understand it, I just found it endlessly kind of fascinating. It's it's, it's such a simple game at at its basic level. You've got four chances to move the ball ten yards down the field. You can move move it more than ten yards, but you need to go ten yards down the field in those four attempts, and then you get another go to do it. And you want to get to the end zone and, and score a score a touchdown. So it's so simple at its basic level. But then it's so complicated with all the different ways you can play it. So I just find it really interesting. What the NFL is really great at for a sport that only plays four and a half, five months of the year. It is 365 days a year of entertainment. You get the access that the league gives you and the stories they tell about the players and their narrative from when they first you know, get drafted in, you know straight out of college to join their teams and, and the, the cyclical nature of it is endlessly entertaining and there's always something going on and it changes in a way that football in our country like mm. Premier League football is often the same team as being successful over and over again it doesn't happen so much in the NFL because of the draft system if you have a very terrible season one year you get the best pick when it comes to the players out of college the next year. I just love it. Love the sport, love the drama.
2: I didn't know anything about this at all. And then one year I cycled around the States a bit and while I was there, it was like the off season and so it was the draft and I knew I knew nothing about the draft. And they make such a big event of it. It goes on for like God, I don't actually know. Like, certainly days. And it's it's really, like, high drama. And obviously they have people who they predict will be drafted early and people who don't and sometimes they do. The whole system in the States of, of like, collegiate sport is fascinating. As you just said, the NFL matches have been played in the UK since 2007, which is way earlier than, than I thought. I thought it'd been, like, the last few years, really. Would you say that there's a lot of growth in the interest in the sport?
4: Oh, 100%. I think even that game that I sort of worked on, that would have been back in 2011, the first time I was involved in it. There were definitely some empty seats and, you know, it was easy to get tickets if you wanted to get tickets. There's always been some very hardcore, dedicated NFL fans in this country who wanted to be there regardless of who's playing, but the sort of mass appeal wasn't there yet. Whereas now, these games this year, trying to get a ticket, to Tottenham in the last couple of weeks, and it's the same for Wembley with the the Broncos-Jags game, is nigh on impossible. They sell out so quickly. People buy season tickets and just repeat them every year so they get all the London games. It is so difficult. They are like the hottest ticket in town, and that speaks to, to the growth of the game and just that sort of mass appeal. And I think there are so many reasons as to why, but I think part of it is it's just more visible and accessible and there's so much coverage now and I think also social media plays a part. It's a wonderfully like diverse group of people as well I think when you look at who's watching these games and who's making waves and making great content around them.
2: I sort of think of the NFL as a very much like male dominated sport. Is there a women's game of NFL or equivalent but also while I have that perception of it being very male dominated there have been some female coaches in the men's game as well haven't there in the States which is not something that we see here with football or or rugby
4: there is women's football and that's both full contact tackling playing by the same rules as men and then flag football which is sort of like what tag rugby is to rugby and it's almost identical looking like you've got the belts on there's no tackling all that or that side of it and in both areas those are both really growing and that's great for kids coming through because obviously it's like less contact but also just the women's sport generally. So this summer, for example, the, the British women's team in full contact football went to the World Championships, got the silver medal. Of course, the USA won, mm-hmm. no big surprises there. They're looking to get, I think, full tackle like standard football into the 2028 Olympics in LA. And that will be both men and women playing. There's the European Championships coming up and England and Ireland are, are all in that. And England were the best in the world championships. You think they should do quite well because I think the great British team was pr- primarily English women. And there are like women's amateur leagues as well. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a friend who plays in it. She's constantly trying to get me to go to training. And I just go, no, <laughs> that looks very scary. <laughs> but the flag football as well, there's a big push from the NFL to get younger girls uh, involved in it. So there's more global ambassadors uh, operating in the UK as well as the US. And then over here, because I'm in the States right now. There was a real push to grow the game at sort of the middle school and high school level mm. for girls, and I actually did a little bit of work with the with the New York Jets, who have a, a girls flag football tournament that they're running in the New York area. And the first year they did it, there was you know ten teams, and the second year there were, there were like thirty teams involved. The growth in it is is massive, and there is that appetite for it, which is which is great to see across the board. And then in terms of the coaching, it's really interesting because just Three years ago, we had the first ever woman to coach in a Super Bowl by the name of Katie Sowers. And obviously there was this like, oh my goodness, we've got a female coach on the sideline and it's amazing, the rest of it. And then a year later, we had two women on the sideline for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and and they won the Super Bowl. And this year, there is something like 12 or 15 women in coaching positions in the NFL. Uh, Now, none of them have got the head coach job yet. None of them are... You know, running the show but it is only a matter of time and there is an increasing number of women in coaching positions and also not just coaching but sort of in the front offices and the executive roles in the league Mm -hmm. as well the first woman to do that was was back in the 80s a woman by the name of amy trask but when you look around now there are there are so many women either as general managers or team presidents or just with those big roles within organizations and it's there are women at every level of the game now we, we have female referees we've had Sarah Thomas was the, was the first woman to, to referee a Super Bowl so there is a lot of female involvement in a game that we only really see on TV played by men I think that's still a long way from changing but in terms of the coaching I think there's a trickle through and and there's been a lot of great work by some brilliant people in and around the league and the league itself to identify female coaching talent and to bring them through and, and help them get internships like anything Women haven't necessarily had a seat at the table in those coaching positions just because of how it's always been done. And it's the NFL works, we talk a lot about coaching trees. So like there's like Bill Belichick coach trees and all the guys that work for him as assistants go on to have these great roles. And just by the very nature of it, those have been men. So it's just getting women in the rooms and into the locker rooms and onto the practice fields. And then everyone's gone, once they're there, that's, that's it. And they're absolutely smashing it.
2: Now, I know that the NFL has a relatively large female following i think 33% of uk fans are women i've noticed through you know just on my travels that the us does things a bit differently to the uk in terms of fans this is just an observation rather than any sort of statistic i could i could give you but it seems to me that women are more engaged in quote unquote men's sports than they are here in the UK do you think that's right and 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 why do you think that is
4: I think that is right and like you said I've got no statistics or anything to back this up but this is just a theory I have when it comes to the NFL and American football in particular I think it's just ing- an ingrained part of culture from such a younger age you know high school football you've got these boys playing the game that are the superstars but everyone goes like you know if you're in a small town on friday night in america everywhere's quiet if the high school team is playing football because everyone goes to those games and then it's the same at the college level the collegiate level some of those stadiums pack out more people in them than the nfl teams Mm. do there's huge following so it's just a part of that culture it's like if your high school your college is playing you go and that often translates then to an NFL team as well.
2: Like I've always been interested in football, but I grew up with two older brothers, so it was part of the culture in my house that we watched football, and that's how I became interested in it. I think now like the younger girls coming up, you know, I think they're made to feel more like it is a world that is open to them whereas I think my generation and probably you as well, Hannah you didn't have any interest in the NFL, but you happened to be there that time and, and you got into it, right? So it's, I feel like previously or historically in the UK, it's something you have to kind of seek out as a woman. It's not something that is just sort of put in front of you and and you're told like, oh, you might like this, by the way.
4: I agree. I think a, a big reason that I love sport and working sport is to do with my mum, because that woman will watch anything competitive on TV, like anything. And she was a huge rugby fan and so was my dad, so we'd go to Northampton Saints matches like that was what we did as a family we had season tickets and we went so that that was part of our yeah family culture I Mm. I suppose but if if that sport like you say isn't put in front of you and I had this conversation actually really recently at work and we were talking about we're actually talking about diversity in the England women's football team and sort of the lack thereof and it's only something that occurred to me relatively recently because I look at being the England netball team which is yeah. very diverse and then I had the realization and I'm assuming we sort of, of a similar age and I was like well we definitely played netball yeah. in school until we were blue in the face did we play netball and hockey don't get me wrong love it I can only remember playing football for maybe like a very short amount of time for like a few weeks maybe as like a p module whereas now girls are playing it hopefully it's moving mm. towards girls playing it from a very young age, so then it becomes part of what you do and what is open to mm. you, whereas football and rugby, we did for, I mean, maybe six weeks a year maximum, and I think that's being very generous. Um, so I think that's got a lot to do with it. I think if girls are playing a more diverse mm. range of sports younger, they feel that they are for them, and that will trickle through to sport as they get older and what sports they watch and engage in.
2: So Hannah, you've got an NFL podcast, Her Huddle. Can you tell me a bit about it, please?
4: It's a podcast and a TV show uh, on Sky. And it's actually, it's really wonderful how Her Huddle came about. So last summer, the brilliant Annika Weldon, who used to work at the NFL UK's office, had this idea that she wanted to do a female focused and female led NFL show so she asked me if I'd be up for being involved and obviously she barely needed to ask I was like what are we doing and when um so we sort of started it off just doing like an Instagram live just interviewing some of the brilliant women around the NFL and it it went down really well and it was just a case of right how can we make this a bit more accessible because the likely it is you're following NFL UK's Instagram account you're already an NFL fan and you're probably not a woman and there's 33% of them like you say but still it's so exciting like Sky and NFL UK have a really good relationship. So I decided for this season to make a TV program and a podcast. So I basically speak to brilliant women working in the NFL at every level. So that's like we've already mentioned from exec roles and front offices, broadcasters, coaches. I spoke to an NFL media producer recently, a head of marketing and fan engagement for the Green Bay Packers when they came over to London. And um, because there are so many, incredible women with great stories to tell at every level in this game. So it's just about opening that up and telling their stories, much like we've discussed, just to go, well, there's a there's a space for you in this sport, no matter what your skill set, interests, and gender is basically. We have a TV show that goes out every fortnight on Thursday with like an extended cut of the interview, releases a podcast because you can't fit all this brilliance into 26 minutes. Mm-hmm. Believe me, I've tried. I was like, we're going to have to put some of these out of the podcast. And then in between weeks, there's myself, Liz Bandari, Ash, uh, Ben Hansen, who um NFL Goal UK and Ashley NFL respectively. And we just chat about what's going on in and around the league. It's just girls talking about sport and it's really good fun. And we forget that we're recording and sometimes it goes off on a major tangent. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's really fun and it's um, it's going down really well with people, which is really Great to see because I felt like there was such a space and there is still such huge gaps, I think, about having women talking about sport in the same way men talk about sport or in the same way women talk about pop culture and fashion and music and all that sort of stuff.
2: So I've written a book about football. I thought it was quite bold of them to publish a woman writing about football from a fan's perspective because there just really aren't any books like that, basically. Diversity in sports writing, sports journalism, I think is really important because different people may have different things that appeal to them about the sport or different perspectives about the sport. It's kind of like this idea that like women inherently don't get sport it's not true, it's just I don't think it's always been made interesting to us and actually like it's our job as journalists, as presenters, as whatever, to make it interesting for people, to give them a reason to care. I just thought it was interesting what you said there, that you, you kind of like talk about it in different ways. Do you, think, do you think there is something in that? Do you think that different groups of people consume sport differently and so it is really important to have those different voices out there?
4: I really strongly believe that. Completely. And it really resonates. You saying it felt like your publishers were being quite bold because it still does feel to me like quite a bold step from sort of sky. Not that it should be, but to have a completely sort of female focused and very female led TV shows, one thing, because there's always been that space for those big conversations and those, those meaty interviews where you really get to know someone. But the podcast as well, I was kind of like, well, what do we think of this? And they were just like, yeah, definitely do it however you want kind of thing. And I think there's that real recognition amongst broadcasters and publishers about that diversity of thought. And I think we see that in terms of who we have talking about all sports at all levels. And just the difference of of perceptions, even, and you notice, even with like generations of players, they've got a guy that retired a couple of years ago, analysing the game, compared to someone who retired 20 years mm. ago. You already see that difference in opinion just from their age. And then you bring in a female perspective and a, or a coach and all the rest of it. And I think one of the biggest sort of testaments to that and uh, is Phoebe Schechter, who's on Sky's NFL coverage now. But she's been a coach. She coached with the Buffalo Bills. And she has brought, you know, a whole different insight and a different tone to the coverage and what she sees and how she breaks down the game. And I think, I don't know whether it's just Phoebe or whether it's that it's a woman, but there's been so many people saying to me, oh, it's really interesting how she talked about it. And I really get it. And and all the rest of it is partly because she's a coach and coaches are inherently teachers. So she can break the game down in a way that, you know, Mm. you would understand. But I think you've really seen that diversity of thought in action and just how people's different experiences, even if they've been in the same field, are so different that they do see things differently. And I think that that engages different people and a wider group of of people in terms of audience.
2: I could probably talk to you about this for ages and ages. It's been a really fascinating chat, but... I am also supposed to ask you about the match that is about to happen on the 30th of October, which is the Jacksonville Jaguars versus the Denver Broncos. And that's the other thing they do in the US. They have better team names than we do. (laughs) I know that you're not presenting this one. I know that this one's on ITV, but can you tell me a little bit about your predictions for the match?
4: I mean, I can try, but the one thing I have learned more than anything in the 2022 season so far, and we're not far into it, saying who you think is going to win is a game of fools, Jen. An absolute (laughs) game of fools. We're having the most unpredictable season ever. What I will say is this. The Jacksonville Jaguars are increasingly fun to watch. They've They've been a team that's been struggling. They've had a lot of first overall draft picks of late. They've not had a lot of success. But they have got a young quarterback who's in his second year. They've got a... New head coach for this season, he's already won a Super Bowl, Doug Peterson. They're really starting to sort of grow into, into who they are and, and build their identity. They're up against Denver Broncos, who coming into the season were pretty hyped, partly because they made one of the biggest trades of the offseason. They brought in Russell Wilson at quarterback from Seattle Seahawks. Now, if you're not familiar with his work, you probably know his wife, Sierra, the pop star, R&B singer. All right, they paid him a huge amount of money. He's the second highest paid quarterback in the league. And things have not been going well for the Denver Broncos. So they really need a win. It would be a, it'll be great for them to get a win on the road. So yeah, they're quite evenly matched in a lot of ways, And it should be an entertaining one. And the Jags, they love playing in London. They've played here every year, I think, since about 2013, bar whenever we didn't have games for the pandemic, 2020. They love playing over here. They've got a huge following over here. And Wembley is sort of their spot. they'll probably have some sort of acrobatics from their mascot to kick things off he bungee jumped off the roof at spurs a couple of years ago but yeah it should be it should be a really good game obviously
2: aside from these nfl matches that have been happening in london that we've been talking about the nfl continues beyond those but you know it's in the states but we can watch it here there is coverage here in the uk how do we watch the NFL in the UK apart from obviously getting involved with her huddle the TV show and indeed the podcast?
4: First of all let me do a a ginormous myth buster. Mm -hmm. You do not have to stay up in the middle of the night to watch the NFL. It's good to know. You don't need to. Some of it is live in the middle of the night yes but you don't need to stay up to watch it. So Sky Sports has a dedicated NFL channel throughout the season so that's from September to February when the Super Bowl happens and we have five games a week so that's Thursday night football which is basically early Friday morning football in the UK so you do have to stay up in the middle of the night to watch your live. but then on a Sunday we've got um, starting from five o'clock we have coverage of the six o'clock game and the nine o'clock game and we bring you Red Zone as well we have that on another channel which is all the big plays and all the big moments from all the games. It's brilliant TV. Uh, And that starts at six o'clock on a Sunday. So Sunday, you've got at reasonable time, prime time Sunday evening viewing, plenty to watch. Mm -hmm. And then we have a new show on on a Tuesday night on Sky Sports NFL as well. So for the games that are in the middle, you can catch up on them and there's highlights on the channel throughout the week.
2: This has been a delightful chat. So I'd like to encourage our listeners to check you out on social media and, and follow you. Where can they do that?
4: I am at Hannah J Wilkes on Instagram and Twitter.
2: Brilliant. Hannah, thank you so much for chatting to me.
4: Thanks, Jen. I really enjoyed that. Thank you for having me.
1: Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, which film that we watched this week means I'm going to be rubbish in the next Outside the Box? Well,
2: Mickey, I feel... Your pain because it's going to be the same situation here, sadly.
1: So we feel Hannah's pain
2: basically. This week we watched 1992's Buffy the Vampire Slayer. The comedy horror was a low budget production of $7 million which went on to grow $16.6 million but also went on to spawn the smash hit TV series which ran from 1997 to 2002 and was a seminal classic of my youth. So what I'm saying is it did alright in the end despite pretty damning reviews. Somewhere between Clueless and The Lost Boys, it stars the relatively unknown Christy Swanson in the lead role as Buffy, a vacuous valley girl with a huge responsibility. She's the slayer, one born to every generation to take down the bad guys, or in this case, vampires, of which there are a lot, it transpires. Mm Mm-hmm. She's instructed by Watcher Merrick, played by
1: Donald Sutherland. Who... I know. I was what? surprised when that happened. I was not expecting Sutherland. It's a very strange cast. <laughs> it's a very strange cast. Eclectic, for sure.
2: So, who wants to help her deal with resident end-of-level baddie Lothos, played by Rudger Hauer?
1: Just going back to that very eclectic
2: cast comment you made, mm. and ably assisted by Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> Paul Rubens. Hello Paul Rubens. As Amalim An 85 year old Luke Perry Stars as Wasteman Pike <laughs> Buffy's unlikely love match While there are also turns from David Arquette Hilary Swank And a very young Ben Affleck To name a few And that is also basically the plot in a nutshell. Can Buffy ditch her cheerleading mole rat teenage antics and step up to the challenge ahead of her? Will Lothos and his henchmen make mincemeat out of our reluctant hero and her high school buddies at the school dance? And what is
1: Pike's facial hair about, anyway? The sideburns. Luke Perry was very famous for his sideburns, wasn't he? Oh, the kind of musketeer goatee. The funny little patch
2: under his chin it's repellent like really awful <laughs> he shaves it off towards the end spoiler alert and uh, and then fair play the film written and subsequently disowned by joss whedon was somewhere between a sort of prototype and prequel to the tv series spin-off which has whedon's grubby paws all over it but the film directed by fran rebel kazooie only has an approval rating of 36% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, really? Yeah, and it was basically a flop, which obviously was not what anyone intended. Whedon has spoken publicly about his disappointment with the end product, which he felt differed enormously from his original script. Like, it was quite dark, his original script, and so they kind of stripped a lot of that out Mm. for the teen audience. And he eventually walked off the set because of this. Speaking about the film in 2017, Whedon said, I always intended for this to be a cultural phenomenon. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Aim high, Joss. Aim high. Well done for you. That's how I wrote it, he said. In the back of my mind, I was always picking up an Oscar or a Saturn award and everyone was playing with Buffy dolls. And in the back of Boris Johnson's mind, I suppose he's picking out a new role of designer wallpaper for number 10, Downing Street. Can't win them all, lads. <laughs> Whedon eventually got his wish with the TV series, which also spawned Merch aplenty and a series of comics, which tackled some quite meaty subjects, such as in 2012, an edition in which Buffy decides to have an abortion. Mm. Whedon, as we know, has subsequently been accused of all sorts of bullying, misconduct
0: and abuses of power. Two television programmes,
2: actually. Yeah, Angel as well. well. Yeah, mm. Angel. Didn't even think about that. But yes, of course, that's quite a major one. Anyway, he's been accused of all sorts of bullying misconduct and abuses of power on the sets of his production so as ever we have to try and separate the art from the artist otherwise there would be no art left
1: should we try and separate the art from the soul. i think maybe that could be the new yeah. the new phrase why not
2: but it is quite hard as a result of this to laud him as any kind of feminist which is obviously how we might previously have felt about some of the things he's produced the film came about he said because he was tired of slasher film cliches especially the dumb oversex blonde stumbling into a dark place to have sex with a boyfriend only to be killed I began thinking that I would love to see a scene where a ditzy blonde walks into a dark alley a monster attacks her and she kicks its ass he said It was at the time a progressive and brilliant idea to have a female teenage action hero and one who has to grapple with all the things that being a teenager brings like fancying wastemen men with bad facial hair or indeed vampires but while facing up to a responsibility she frankly did not ask for. Now I know that none of us had seen this film previously and I've already said I loved the TV series. I wondered, did either of you guys ever watch the TV series when it was on in the sort of 90s and 2000s?
0: You know we did. I didn't know you did actually, Hannah. Yeah, it was the one where the whole family really loved Buffy. One of about the three things that my entire family watched together. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Robot Wars. We liked a bit of Robot Wars in our family. And something else which I currently can't think of, but it to me later. So.
2: And did you like it? Were you, were you a fan of it? Yeah,
0: I think, I think I thought it was really funny. That's what
1: appealed to me about it. I came to Buffy quite a lot later, actually. I didn't watch it when it was on telly at the time because I think I was away at university, so I kind of
0: missed it and wasn't doing that kind of thing. You are correct, because I, I didn't live at home. I just used to go around and have my tea with my family on, on Buffy night. Yeah. <laughs>
1: A little bit far for me to travel. But yeah, when I did get into it, it meant that I could binge all seven series probably about 10 or 15 years ago now, maybe 10 years ago. And I love it. I love
2: it. And I, I watched the first two episodes last night as a kind of like comparison. I sort of wanted to see how they stood up against the film because um, it's a long time since I've I've watched any of it. Obviously, we're talking about the film, not the TV series, but it is kind of hard not to draw comparisons between the two. How
0: did you feel about this, comparatively speaking? I mean, agree that I think that's the the biggest black mark against this film is that it's not the television series. A bit like when we were watching Shrek. It's not Shrek know, The biggest problem with Shrek is it isn't Shrek 2. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it says something favourable about something that, you know, that... The only thing you can really say is it's not a later iteration of it, I think, personally.
1: I think as much as this film is nowhere near as good or as complex or as nuanced as the series, the series just wouldn't exist without it. It simply would Mm. not exist without it. So they are sort of part and parcel. There is a flashback, I think, in season two to the the film as well. It's sort of reference, even though Joss Whedon, like, oh no, it never happened kind of attitude. Well, it did. And it. I think it meant that they could get a lot of stuff wrong that they've then corrected for the series. I also think, in all fairness, as a standalone film, it's really fun. I didn't hate it. Mm. I liked it. I had a nice time. It's genuinely funny in places. It's a lot dafter than the series. Yeah. But if you didn't know there was going to be serious sort of conversations about puberty and relationships and all sorts of stuff that comes up in the series. This, on its own, I think deserves way more than 36% on Rotten Tomatoes. I think, it's, I think it was
0: good fun. I like the daftness. Mm. Pee Wee Herman's death is, <laughs> is incredibly funny in this. I did laugh, yeah. And utterly stupid. One of the problems that I always have with things like this is that nobody else notices what's going on. But actually, this makes the fact that nobody else notices what's going on a virtue. It makes a joke out of the mm. fact that everyone else is so... Because I have to say, you miss the greatest actor off the list of people that you went through, Jen, because Stephen Root is in this. And yeah, Stephen Root gets great. the best line, which is, that is definitely not a student. <laughs> which, which really made me laugh.
1: Uh, as Rutger Hauer lisps and yeah. hams his way onto the dance floor. I tell you what, there's uh. something that is very similar... Because I also have started watching the series, as I hinted, with the intro. And just to show that Jen is an absolute lightweight when it comes to binging telly, I am already seven episodes in. I only started
2: last night, mate. Same,
1: same. (laughs) But I would just like to say that I don't think cartwheels and backflips are an efficient way to travel. No. No, I would agree with that. Sometimes I think it'd just be quicker to run at the vampires. I mean... She's busy backflipping and cartwheeling. They could just get a hold of her when she's, like, focusing on not falling over.
0: Oh, they do, like, do that thing that happens in these sort of films where they basically queue up to fight her. The martial you know? arts vibes, yeah, yeah, they- yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Like Fist of yeah.
1: Fury, like, just one ninja at a time, please.
0: yeah. But nobody questions why there's suddenly an old man hanging around the school either, and that I think is important <laughs> to question. <laughs> why creepy old men have suddenly started to go to to the nineties, Hannah? It was
1: different times, yeah. I thought it was interesting
2: watching the series. This probably speaks to, like, the mentality of Joss Whedon. (laughs) They refer to things that were cut from the film. So, like, in the first episode of Buffy, she's having a conversation with the headmaster and it's revealed that she's been expelled from her previous school for setting the gym on fire, which she did to kill a load of vampires, which should have been the ending of this film. But it was cut because they thought that was too dark. Yep. I just thought that probably says a lot about Joss Whedon that he wanted to, like, do a callback to something from his masterpiece that was cut. It's
1: interesting, isn't it? I think. He's not here to fight his corner. I don't know what no. if I, what I'm about to say about Joss Whedon is true or not. That is my caveat, but it's not libelous, so don't worry. But what I found really interesting about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the 1992 film, is it, it, it does forecast a lot of what we're going to see in the series. I also think mm. it forecasts a lot of what went wrong with Joss Whedon, in that it yes. is very pervy about them, about the young it's girls. It's so sexist. It's so sexist mm. and objectifying. And there's a line at the end the closing credits i don't know if you guys picked up on this where buffy's supposed boyfriend has abandoned her because she's been too busy slaying vampires to hang Mm -hmm. out with him and instead he's going out with one of her was best mates the other vacuous airheads the mean girls and they're all being interviewed on the telly stephen root does a fucking amazing interview on the telly about what's Mm -hmm. just happened with all the vampires and what was going on and that as the credits are rolling And you see this guy and this girl on the telly and he's like, oh, well, I had an inkling something was going to go on. So I got us out of there and he's being all the hero. She's looking very disheveled and very upset. And she just says, I can't believe I let you do that to me. And then they cut. And I think that is horrendous. Mm. I didn't see. I didn't notice that at all. She looks at him and she goes, I can't believe I let you do that to me. And then they cut the interview to something else. Who thinks that is an okay line to leave in?
0: Yeah. Why does she stay at the dance other than, you know, plot? If you've gone to a dance, right, and you've turned up and your friends are all being bitches to you and your boyfriend's gone with someone, you'd just go home, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. It just—it just seems ridiculous to me. Or you go to a pub and get pissed, <laughs> pick up somebody. It just seems weird to me. It just—it's that to me is entirely designed. There are a number of things that happen in this that are real clangers that yeah. are real. You know, just a service. I know the, plot. the age
1: of drinking is twenty-one in America, mm-hmm. Hannah. But you're right. Not all American states, but all of them look about. Some 30, of them are nineteen, so they could go to the pub yeah. to get pissed because they've done that
0: high school yeah. thing of all the actors are at least thirty-four. There is a really good line in this that is utterly spaffed by the fact that whatever he's called, I've never seen him in anything before, uh, Luke Perry, right? Mm. It's really spaffed by the fact that Luke Perry is a man in this because there's a bit where she calls him a man and he says did you just call me a man yeah which would be a great line if it had been played by somebody who was vaguely age appropriate (laughs) 40
1: there was
2: always a joke about him in in, i think it was always in the simpsons and stuff like that like it's a long-running joke isn't it about how old luke perry clearly (laughs) is in all i know in in, in that era mickey i just wanted to come back to what you said for a minute because that's one of the things that i noticed about it was there were horribly sexist things in it. And mm. it's, you know, it's meant to be sexist. These aren't presented as, like, aspirational viewpoints. The people saying it, are, are, the, like, the characters are shitheads. Like, the boy's like, oh, can I borrow her? Yeah. And then the guy, when she steals the bike, he says, you want something powerful between your legs? Like, horribly misogynistic mm. lines. And I think, like, it's really hard to watch it now and not have the things that have been said about Whedon like massively colour your viewing I experience. Yeah, of absolutely
1: it. agree with you. Mm. That's why, like, my caveat was: I don't know if it was him who put those lines in, or if mm. they were ones that were added after he stomped yeah. off set, or any of that. But it feels quite telling to me. And also, rewatching those first few episodes of the series, Xander is creepy as fuck. Mm. Yeah, and I think Xander's just Whedon.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he probably I... is, isn't he? Mm. Never thought about that.
1: Oh, don't friend zone me. I'll be all rapey and turn into a hyena. Yeah, he's a bit incelly, isn't he, old
0: yeah. There is a couple of things in this that I think are worth mentioning that are, I would say, quite good or stand out for a film of its time. You know, she uses her power against men who touch her in the corridor, yeah. which is, yeah. you know, impressive. She talks about a period, which is something that doesn't often turn up in stuff like this. And there is a line that made me go, Ooh, then made me go, ah, and then made me go again, <laughs> which is full range of emotions. At the dance, Luke Perry says to her, you're not like other girls which made me angry yeah then she said yes I am which made me happy and then I realized she said yes I am in the sense of I just want to be wearing a dress and dancing with a man which made me angry again (laughs) quite the emotional roller coaster that line yeah she just wants to go to Europe marry Christian Slater and die is it too
1: much to ask (laughs) Hannah I think we can all relate to that
0: (laughs) There was something else I wanted to mention about Legacy, and that is, and it links to what I talked to earlier, there is an absolutely excellent young adult book, and I don't do young adult, but there's an absolutely excellent young adult book by Patrick Ness, which is called The Rest of Us Just Live Here. It's about the children that don't realise that there is something weird going on Mm -hmm. in a town. So it's about not the heroes. It's about the average people who, you know... In Stranger Things, in Buffy, in those things that don't realise what's going on. And I think it, it struck me as really clear when I was watching this, The you know, the kind of absolute nonsense that nobody seemed to realise that any of these people not only were vampires, but were people who went to their school or things like that, that they were all a bit surprised by. It's a yeah.
1: phenomenon that clearly the people of Uxbridge
0: are definitely feeling as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) I I don't... Do you know what, though? I don't think it's terrible. I think the nugget of the idea is good. Mm. I just think the delivery is not great or the execution isn't great. And I think the execution... I mean, actually, like, for example, the killing the vampire seems terribly disappointing after everything that comes subsequently when you see vampires, like, dry up or explode or all the other things that happen to vampires subsequently. You know, them just falling on the floor seems a bit lame. But... One of the things that really struck me about how kind of, I don't know, basic it is, was that cheerleading? Oh, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's just
1: sort of the end of winning time. So the 80s and the Lakers and how it shifted then, but before cheer. So, yeah, they've not gone into the mad like gymnastics yet, but they are just focused on the girls looking sexy bit.
0: Yeah, they don't have a flyer. They don't have any of those things that, you know... Mm that most for i would say for probably the last 20 years cheerleading has had cheerleading has become a a a sport in as much well this is 30 years ago isn't it yeah
1: Yeah. it's interesting how fast that has become like a proper high-end sport high-end sport i've made it
0: sound expensive i mean like really athletic i think it is expensive if you fall down and break something in america Mm. well then lads
2: i'm actually going to struggle with this a little bit
0: (sighs) rated or dated I'm going to give it a rated. I had a nice time. I agree. Didn't hate it. I didn't hate it. I think it's had influence in a number of areas and those things have been good. So, yeah, rated.
2: I found it disappointing, but that's for the reasons that we've discussed. So it's I'm, I'm a little bit torn, but it did spawn one of the things that I loved watching the most when I was a teenager. So I guess I've got to say rated. Not to sound too reluctant about it. <laughs> whose turn is it next week?
1: It is me. It is me. And I am going to give you a choice live on air Ooh. to see whether you put the podcast or your mental well-being first in
0: these situations. <laughs> oh God, it's like breakfast at Tiffany's again, isn't it? <laughs> oh, think, think worse, think worse. Oh God, is it like Love Actually again? Because we had
1: so much fun last time. We could celebrate the 18th birthday of... Bridget Jones, The Edge of Reason. Right. Hannah's just got her head in her hands. Oh, she's put up. She's she's gone. She's left. (laughs) She's left. Mike dropped. She's left the building. Yeah. We're going to have to get rid of her anyway because she calls Steve Baker a cunt. (laughs) (laughs) Or we can boil too many eggs and have a lovely time with
0: 1967's Cool Hand Luke. Yes, please. Jen's just shrugging. So, eggs it is. Cool Hand Luke. I literally have a photograph of Cool Hand Luke within my eyesight. Your lucky eyes. Yeah.
3: Standard issue for all women.